Whether I'm turkey hunting, scouting, or glassing for game, I never go into the woods without my Vortex Optics. With their VIP warranty, I can go with confidence because it'll replace any glass damaged in the woods. I dropped my binoculars out of the deer stand last fall, and Vortex got me fixed up and back in the tree in no time. Vortex makes the highest quality and affordable rangefinders, binoculars, and scopes on the market. Y'all check them out at vortexoptics.com. You know, 90 days, more or less, inside the calendar, fish on this river are eating bugs like western trout. And they're bigger than western trout. Our fishery is developing at a rate in which none of us can really fathom. We're all seeing new bugs every year. I'm digging out stuff I haven't thrown in five years and catching good fish on. That's crazy. That's awesome. You're listening to the Ozark Podcast. We sit down with men and women from the Ozarks that have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Ozark Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Veet, and as always, I am joined by co-host of the show and my good buddy, Kyle Plunkett. Yes, sir. Happy to be here. What do we got for the people today? We've got the trout special. Mm. Bugs, bugs, and bugs. It is bug season. It's buggy around these parts here. We got to hang out with Ben Woodard of Woodard Fly Fishing, and he just knows what he's doing. I mean, we've been following him for years Big browns. I mean, every picture I see is a, is a nice size brown that he's pulling out of there. So I was excited to get to hang out with him and get to learn firsthand how he does it. Yeah, we talked sulfur specifically, the sulfur mayfly. And uh, one of the parts I really enjoyed was just the science behind bug hatches mm-hmm. and what makes the White River special. And even recently, what's made it really special in terms of bugs and fishing ability within those bug hatches. Yeah, a lot of people talk about the caddis, but there's the sulfur that people don't hear about. And uh, it, it's definitely something that people and anglers need to know about. Go figure it out. Go catch those fish. Pull in a big brown. So y'all check it out. It will definitely help you be more proficient on the water and hope y'all enjoy. Guys, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on. I'm very privileged to work on one of the coolest tailwaters in the United States, um, home of some of the biggest fish. And uh, summer is one of my favorite times, and we're approaching one of the best hatches, the sulfur hatch. And uh, I'm excited to talk with y'all about that. Yeah, we're going to get into that and get into specifics of what is it, you know, what do you need, and, and how do you fish it. But before we go there, uh, let's just, as we always like to start, uh, Ben, why don't you just kind of give us a little bit about you and, uh, you know, where are you from? What's your story? I live in Cotter, Arkansas. Um, I'm married to my beautiful wife, Jenny Woodard, uh, from Little Rock. Um, I'm originally from Waco, Texas. Uh, I was born and raised there. Um, I moved to Arkansas in 2015 or 2014 um, and started guiding shortly after um, down in the central Arkansas area. Um, my family uh, is from Arkansas, dating back to the 1800s. We settled in the Whit Springs snowball area. Um, and so I feel very at home here. My great grandma passed away in Harrison, and there's memories of my folks driving up and seeing her and fishing the White River. So I grew up fly fishing in the Wachita um, on the Little Missouri River. Uh, which is a put-and-take, sock trout, kind of winter fishery. Wade fishing, no indicators, swinging, wet flies, marsh browns, uh, fishing light kales in November. Um, so that was kind of my introduction into Arkansas fly fishing. Uh, and then shortly after, migrated to the Little Red and the White River system um, in the North Fork as well. So, um I've lived in a lot of places, um, Hot Springs, Archadelphia. Uh, I lived in Eureka Springs for a season uh, where I worked um, and guided on the Kings River. Um, and still frequent that area of customers. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's a little bit about me. Um, I guess I caught my first trout in New Mexico. Um, I've guided in Montana. Um, <clears throat> I frequent Idaho in the summers as well. How did you get started from taking it from fly fishing to making it into your career 
into something that you wanted to do for a living um, and in, into a company? How did that transition go? Yeah, it took, a, it took several years. Um, I guess we'll go all the way back. We'll, we'll go full detail. Let's do it. We've, we've got time, we've got man. time. This right. is what we do. <laughs> so uh, I was in school at Henderson State University and made friends with some of the folks at Watchtaw Outdoor Outfitters. Um, so this is mid-teens. Uh, Jake Meredith and uh, Don Jackson. Some of the best people around, really. Uh, still still around. Evan Smedley is there now. Um, some really great people. And um, through, that, through that shop, they kind of fostered my love for fly fishing while I was in college. Um, my college career ended and I was looking for a job. I started doing roofing, uh, for a customer of mine now, actually, um, kind of pulled me through some stuff, which was cool. And, um, about the time that was kind of making or breaking job was kind of coming to a close. Jake called me right as I was about to take a right turn underneath the bridge and go roofing. I took a left while I was on the phone. He'd offered me the job. And uh, there in five minutes and kind of ran the fly fishing section of that store for two and a half, three years. Um, and through that process, um, met a lot of the people that we all know today uh, that I guide with on the river that I'm privileged to work alongside with on the river. Um, I created. In, I was the producer of the film Fly Fish Arkansas that came about actually at that shop. The manager that ended up uh, quitting and I kind of filled some of those shoes. I was telling about this idea of like, hey, there's nothing on the state about the fisheries. I mean, there's nothing at the time. There's nothing. Right. So I had a couple things out. Um, had, you know, maybe a thousand views mostly spin fishing videos, but nobody knew about the resources. Um, and I kind of told them about this idea of filming all these different places and putting it together. It's like, ah, it's not possible. So I was like, ah, no, I'm going to do it. So I did it. Um, I went about over the next eight months contacting the people that I knew and uh, made it happen, put it together. I've seen that video. Um, and it was, it was, I think it was before I even knew maybe who you were, but yeah, it's, I mean, it really does a good job of highlighting a lot of like the beauty of the Ozarks and fly fishing, uh, in Arkansas. Like, you know, it's hard to believe that at one point that was under wraps and, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of people found out slowly in different ways over time. Um, but yeah, that's a, as an awesome film, you, you did a great job. Well, especially because, I guess that more media and all of that's being produced around our state now more than ever. But there for a while, it was all all out west. I mean, if you're going to talk fly fishing, you're talking Montana or Colorado or wherever else. And all that's great, but you're looking at one of the best fisheries in the state as far as good trout fishing goes. And, it's yeah, it's pretty interesting that for decades, yeah. nobody really knew about it. Yeah. And, and not just in the state. I remember a personal story here, but just real quick, we went up to Colorado and we were so excited to go up there and fly fish and uh, on the Gunnison River and mm -hmm. the Taylor. And we were pumped to be up there. We went in the fly shop and they're like, where y'all boys from? And we're like, oh, we're, we're from Arkansas. We're up from Arkansas visiting. He was like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> He's like, y'all need to go home. Y'all got some insane fishing down there. So just a little personal anecdote there to, but yeah, great film. Didn't mean to derail. No, no, absolutely. No, anywhere you go out west, you tell them you're from Arkansas, they're like, oh, the White River. Dreamer fishing. Oh, that yeah. place. Oh, you're right. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so um, at the end of that video is me in the commercial hotel talking about the safe fishery. And, you know, at the time I was not guiding. I was not in that film as a guide. Um, but that ended up what I decided I wanted to do. Um, so through those experiences and those years and meeting the people that I know today, 
um, and kind of following in those footsteps the best I can to build my business to be like theirs or to compete alongside theirs um, and to offer one of the most professional and competitive services in the state. Um, that's how that came to be through that process and in hot springs. Why do you feel like you've been so successful in, in these last several years since you went full time and, and what do you do to try to differentiate and to be that professional complete outfitter? Why is that important to you and, and how do you pull that off? I've seen a lot of programs across the country um, from Montana, Idaho, Florida, um, all over the country. The best guides catch fish and good fish every day, not dependent necessarily on the customer or the circumstances. You overcome them every day. It's part of your job. And so how I differentiate myself between, I mean, every guide does it, but I work hard to catch good fish. Um, and I know how to feed good fish. I've been doing it a long time. I've been fishing size 20 inches a long time. I've been fly fishing in this state since I was 12. And so as far as differentiating myself in fishing, um, I fish hard. You get in my boat with an accurate cast, I'm going to tell you where to put it. And if you put it there, you're going to catch the fish. Um, I tell my guides, spots, not thoughts. It's the boulder. It's the exact boulder. Not just a couple different boulders that live on boulders. It's that exact boulder. And you ingrain it in your mind. And you write down the water level in which they're there. And then you go back the next time and you throw the same bugs in the same place. And most of the times they're there. I feel like a lot of people have thought about taking something they love like fly fishing and turning it into a career, but to actually do it and pull it off and be successful at it um, is much harder thing to do. And so um, kudos to you for doing that. So let's get into, obviously it's springtime. You know, we were texting back and forth. You call it bug season. Um, what, what is bug season? And, and talk me through some of the different hatches on the white river um, and and then we can get into the sulfur hatch from there. But just kind of overview, what what are the hatches that we see on the white? And for some listeners who may not know what a hatch is, what's a hatch? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, sorry to kind of jump the gun off sulfur. So excited. Um, um, yeah, no, there are a lot of bugs. Uh, bug season on the White River system. Um, and, you know, the Norfolk. Um there are caddis that start in April, along with midges. Um, size 20s, 18, stuff like that. Just your standard black mid. You've heard ruby mid, you know, the fly, right? Zebra midges, you know, all that works, right? That's a pretty long period of time in which that will happen. Um, and it happens once water temperatures rise into the mid-50s. You know, um, a sunny day, the surface temperature will be warmer, right? Um, and these bugs hatch everywhere on the river, um, all times of the day, in certain spots, spots on the river, um, shade, sun, doesn't matter, water necessarily, height of water, flow of water, doesn't necessarily matter. Um, those bugs will hatch completely dependent on Fahrenheit. Okay. You talk about hatching without getting into like the deep, deep entomology of everything that goes on, like just overview of like what, what that is and what does that look like? So a hatch is when the nymph stage of a bug, the Fahrenheit of the water makes that bug emerge into its adult form. That can be a elk hair caddis, right? It can be a caddis. Uh, that can be a midge. That can be a mayfly. It can be a lot of different things. Um, it can be a dragonfly or a damsel, right? It can be a crane fly. It can be a mosquito. Um, 
but a hatch is when the nymph or the larvae stage of a certain bug moves into its adult form. And it happens on lakes, rivers, really any body of water um, that's got, you know, certain certain components in the water like oxygen and sulfur and sulfates and stuff like that. So that's a hatch. Got it. Good good to set the tone. Um Sorry, I, I can get really pulled into talking about bugs. It's it's everything. Um, so from April through May, you'll see midges and caddis hatch on the White River. Um, every year is different. Some years, caddis hatches are 15 days. Some years, they're 60. It's completely dependent upon how long the water is kind of in this weird Fahrenheit bubble between 51 and 54 degrees. Hmm. Now they can run as much water as little water as they want. Usually one unit to two units of water will ensure the longest caddis hatch possible. That means you have cold water that's coming through constantly, but it is shallow enough. It's getting warm by the sun. And so you're going to have a hatch. It's going to happen in the warmest parts of the day. So it's going to be probably 10 o'clock through 6 o'clock, tailing into 7 p.m. That's what happened last year. Um, everybody remembers the caddis hatch last year. It was pretty epic on the White River. Um, and the sulfur hatch was, was good as well. Um, you know, last year's caddis hatch was like 45 days long. Um Years before that, sixty-eight. It was it was a long hatch. This year was more like twenty days. Um, you know, probably fifteen really good days, um, and that's a little bit more realistic. Now, what what happened was the the floodgates turned on and it raised the water temperature up too quickly, um, and so it just didn't last very long. Right. So usually. The caddis hatch is going to last to like the second or third week of May. There's going to be a down week um, where there's not yet sulfurs. Um, there's some black caddis kind of making their way out. Um, you'll start seeing various mayflies. Um, you'll start seeing crane flies. During this period of time, in that second week of May to that first week of June where we are now, um, you'll You'll see stoneflies, um, and you'll see them earlier, too, if it's warmer, you know. Um, I've seen them in March in some years in Cotter. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of bugs that move through that two-month window, right, um, April through the end of May. Um, now, June, where we are now, um, there's a lot of mayflies moving in the water now. Mayflies, there are 3,000 different types of mayflies. Oh, wow. I had no idea. <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, there's like 42 different genus families. Um, the one we're going to talk about today that I wrote down, Ephemerella invaria. Got it. The scientific name. I love it. You're never going to hear me say that on the boat. I'm going to say, look at that yellow bug <laughs> over there. Um, so... These sulfur, these this type of mayfly um, is a newer hatch on this river. Um, they are they they have been popular in the southeastern United States for a long time. Um, they're in parts of the western U.S. They're in Canada. Um, they've been very popular on the Holston River for a long time, the South Holston River in Tennessee. Um, they have a great sulfur hatch, um, but we are developing one. Um, three years ago, it was probably 10, 12 days long, um, very sporadic. Um, last year, it was 30 days. Wow. So significantly longer. Yeah, no, big jump, right? Um, mayfly nymphs live anywhere between uh, six months to two years. Um, this one in particular, some. Some mayfly nymphs can live up to six years before they hatch. Um, so it takes a while for a hatch to get going and a hatch to get planted. 
Um, they can lay up to 4,000 eggs, a female uh, sulfur mayfly. So it takes some time, but year to year it's growing. And we're about to see what's going to happen this year. They're running the same exact water as they did last year right now. So, so you're looking at this year and going, all right, last year was great. This year is going to be really great. Just because, I mean, it's that many more eggs, that much more time, water's doing its thing, correct temperature, all of that. Is that, is that what you're thinking? Correct, correct. And that, that's a bug that needs a little bit higher temperature. Um, right now, our tailwater temperature is 50 degrees. You know, it's only been like 80 degrees for a couple couple days now. And so lake temperatures on bull shoals, that's a big lake. Um, they're not necessarily warm yet. So the bottom of the lake where the water's coming out of bull shoals dam still 50 degrees and it's 51 degrees in the afternoon and surface temperature is around 53 54 and so they're coming off in the afternoon like 3 30 to 5 30 and we're going to see that time range increase in about two o'clock one o'clock all the way till you know late afternoon as water temperature reaches 54 consistently from the bottom of the day so um we should have a sulfur hatch that will last into July. If they keep, you know, the water is going to run out at some point, but sulfur hatch and no matter what water condition they run, it's all about Fahrenheit. It's all about the water temperature. So, and something that, I, that I've heard is, and I think you kind of just alluded to it a little bit, but um, as you have lower water, the sun um, can kind of heat that, that tailwater a little bit quicker. Um, and so if they were to start running lower water more consistently, you would, you would even see that timeline accelerate from three thirty to two to one or into the, to the late morning and stuff like that. Um, is, is that right? You, you would kind of expect to see that accelerate that much quicker. Correct. Yeah. So it would it would lengthen that time period in which they hatch. It would also shorten the amount of days they would hatch. So what happened last year with oh. Addis, it was a little bit shorter because on like May 18th, we got a really hot day. They ran a minimum flow. All of our caddis just hatched. Gone over three, four days. So if they do drop the water, they, they drop the water, it goes to 90 degrees. And this would have to be a we run out of water and they're not generating power for people kind of situation. Um, our sulfur hatch would happen very quickly. It would be awesome for those days, and then it would be over. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Some of the videos that I've seen, um, actually, I was just at the, uh, the fly fishing film tour, and uh, shout out to Connor Harris and Kurt Harris. Um, they got to show their film over here, uh, of emergence, I think is what it's called. And super cool film. Unbelievable. The footage that they got from last year, like you couldn't see through the caddis. <laughs> it's, it's insane. Uh, it, you wouldn't think it's our river. I mean, it's, it's wild. Um, I've, I've taken a lot of people fly fishing. I've never had anyone say, Oh, I've seen positive fish like that before. They've all said, yeah. never seen so many 20-inch browns sitting on top of each other. I mean, it's like... Y'all want those bugs. It's bug season. Bug season. <laughs> there's a lot of things to know about hunting turkeys in the Ozarks, but there's two things I know for sure. One, it's that turkeys have really good eyesight, so your camo matters. Canis makes an incredible turkey camo. It is comfortable. It is breathable blends into the background like no other. It is the perfect camouflage for those long sits back up against a white oak tree, hearing those hens and gobblers hold up 200 yards away as I'm just waiting for them to come in. The second thing you gotta know is you have to be prepared for anything. Whether it's a tom sneaking up behind you or a rainstorm coming at you out of nowhere, Canis has you covered. From the Nunavut rain jacket to the chamois fleece hoodie to the alpine pant with built-in knee pads, make sure you have Canis on you for this upcoming turkey season. Use our discount code OZARK for 15% off website or in-store, and good luck this turkey season. So 
typically what happens out west after the meltout, you've got hatches in which those fish only see bugs for three to four months and they just go crazy, right? Um, and that's, that's what's popular about out west. You get to go through a dry flies and the fish eat it and match that fish, right? And that hasn't been a thing on the White River. It's been there for the caddis hat, which has been fun. But now we also have the sulfur hatch. And so that's, you know, 90 days, 100 days, more or less inside the calendar in which fish on this river are eating bugs like western trout. And they're big mm -hmm. fish. They're bigger than western trout. So it's, it's pretty fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, our, our fishery is developing at a rate in which none of us can really fathom. Um, and we're all seeing new bugs every year. You know, I'm, I'm digging out stuff I haven't thrown in five years and catching you know, good fish on. That's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's cool. So um, I think it's going to continue to develop. I think, um, you know, it takes four to six years for stonefly nymphs to really grasp hold of their environment to hatch regularly. Um, I think we'll see that. Um, I think if they continue running water like they've had, they have in the past years, I think we'll get consistent hatches like this on the White River. And you're looking at a nine-month window of throwing bugs. You can grass on season, you know, for season. And we've got Japanese beetles that hatch um, and are fishy. Um, we've got a lot of different hatches that last all the way through August or September. Talking about all this, it, I mean, I know we already have some state records uh, or I guess world records really under yeah. the belt for Arkansas, but it makes sense when you start thinking all the different bugs, especially when you start throwing in stone flies. And I mean, that's a huge bug when they're fully mature, all the hopper season, all of the, I mean, the sulfurs cicadas. and the caddis and the cicadas that come around and all of that. And then you throw all the shad on yeah. the back end of that because oh, it's a yeah. tailwater. Oh, yeah. it, it makes sense that the white river is just, the place for massive trout yeah. and i it's, it's it took that long for me sitting now in this chair talking about this for all that to click and go oh it's because we have like some of the best food supply in the world for growing massive massive fish yeah, it's it's like unheard of in in other rivers i caught a 21 inch male brown and cotter on april 18th at like three o'clock in the afternoon he ate a pertagon that i thought he had three shad sticking out of his mouth. Oh my gosh. There's shad everywhere. He's just hungry. <laughs> we had a shad kill for 14 mm -hmm. days back in, you know, the winter. And, uh, yeah, no, these, these fish grow at an unprecedented rate. And there are a lot of fish downriver in which people don't ever see. And those fish have been growing for a long time without anybody catching them. Um, you know, it's a hundred miles of trout fishing. It's insane. So, yeah, no, once again, very, very privileged to be able to work on a river like this um, and to have the trout that we do in the state of Arkansas. Absolutely. What's the biggest fish you've caught or you've had a client catch during bug season? Um, we caught a 26-inch brown on a size 12 beetle two years ago. Um, that was pretty good. Um, let's see. My wife caught a 30 on a hopper as well. Um, sulfur season. I've had three days, 20 browns over 20 inches last year. I had five days, 15 browns over 20 inches. Oh, heck yeah. Can you imagine a day, 20, 20 browns over 20 inches in one day? <laughs> no. I think I'd quit. That's that, awesome. That'd be it. It's my best day. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> Heart and call of the day. This is a customer. I had the pleasure of fishing for uh, Matt Stennett. Great, great guy. Um, we're up near Stetson. And last of the day, we picked out the brown and want. They're all potted up, eaten. And, uh, you know, guy makes an amazing cast. And um, the fish comes up and ditches it. And then a bigger fish on its backside pushed past the fish we wanted and ate the fly. Oh, man. 
That's awesome. It's just epic. Can be. You know, every day's got its challenges. Um, but we work hard to catch them either way. Well, let's talk some tactics on how to catch them. Because I know uh, I know I've spent a lot of days in the white, and I, I feel like I'm just now getting good at it. And half the fish I feel like I catch on skill, and I feel really good about myself. And then the other half of the fish I catch, I feel like it's pure luck, <laughs> and I'm just guessing. And yeah. So, you know, sulfur specifically, and then even uh, some of the some of the midge patterns, all that kind of stuff. Just do a run through of gear, flies, technique, water you're looking for, all that kind of stuff. And I'm just going to pretend like I know nothing and yeah. uh, and ask questions because <laughs> when it comes to sulfurs, I know nothing. <laughs> yeah, so I fish, uh, fish a five-way rod. Um, I'd recommend a rod size anywhere between like a 10-foot four-way. It's a lot of fun. A 10-foot five-way is a lot of fun. Um, but for nymphing, I fish a nine-foot five. Um, I fish a G Loomis IMX Pro or an RX Plus. Um, I use a pretty aggressive weight forward taper, um, kind of like an MPX. Um, we'll talk about leader setup. Before you go there, you you just made an interesting point. You talked about dry fly fishing. You'd throw a, a ten foot rod versus nymphing. You'd be on a nine foot rod. Why differentiate? So for nymphing, I'll use a nine foot five weight, um, something stiff, something I can set the hook with hard if I need to, if I'm in a smaller area um, or, uh, or shorter distance from the bank. Sometimes if the water's gone, um, you know, above 12,000 CFS, we might be 30 feet away. Um, so something, something short, but something that can protect 5X. Um, for dry fly fishing, uh, you can do it with a 9.5. A lot of people do. Um, and I, I will most likely hand you one um, if you know what you're doing. They're great. Um, a 9.5 or a 10-foot rod is amazing for dry fly fishing on this river, especially in high water. Mm. Um, a longer rod allows you to reach your bend out further and move it over different current seams. It allows you to move more line. Um, if you're if you're rushing your cast, um, a 10-foot rod will, will slow you down more. It'll make you slow down. Um, it'll cast a little bit further, too. Granted, you know, an extra sure. foot, right? Um, so if you're fishing high water on this river... Your fish are always going to pick the slowest moving seam adjacent to the second most slowest moving seam, right? Um, they're going to be on structure, per se, maybe a little bit out of it, right, if the water's moving the same speed around the structure. Um, but they're going to mm-hmm. move out and maybe eat some fast water. But where the boat's going to be, it's going to be a rip in about, I don't know, five mile an hour faster than what you're looking at. Where your line's sitting okay. is moving three mile an hour faster than what you're looking at. All these different current seams are moving in this river. And so being able to make a cast and then mend over the top of them before your leader gets moved away from the fish is paramount. And so a longer rod allows you to do Got it. That makes sense. I, I've never heard anyone break it down like that, but. Now that you say it, it's like, oh, yeah, that, that's yeah, a huge sense. benefit. It, it protects tippet as well. Um, but, yeah, those are the two things for sure. Got it. Okay. So, dries, you're on a 10-foot. When you're nymphing, you're, you're on a 9. Um, you're talking about your weight forward line. Why do you use that aggressive kind of taper to to the front? So... When I fish the bank, uh, when a lot of us fish the bank, but when I fish the bank, it's pretty aggressive. Um, I need that line in there fast. You need your flies in there fast. Um, you're picking up and moving line in and out pretty quick. And so having a fast rod and a fast line is, is pretty important. The rig that I fish when I fish the bank, nymphing, is not that deep might be six feet deep. They can be running 16,000 
CFF, I'm probably going to fix you about seven feet deep, six feet. I mean, mm-hmm. I really do not push that deep. So having a weight forward line just to carry the weight of that rig to its target, um, pretty important. Now, when it comes to dry fly fishing, I'll choose a longer head, um, a 42 foot head um, on a fly line. Um, something that will really stretch a cast out. Uh, when people dry fly fish out of my boat, um, you're looking at a 45, 55 foot cast. And so if I have a 42 foot head, it's going to be easy to pick up 45 feet. It's going to be easy to pick up mm-hmm. 55 feet. So, um, especially with a 10 foot rod. If you've never done it before, that's kind of how we do it. So, um, now, as far as leaders go, um, we'll talk about nymphing and drives. Just kind of moving down the line. Um, a lot of us use tapered leaders when we fly fish. A lot of guides, almost every guide, builds their leader. And if you're not building your leader, I would recommend you build your leader, guys. Um, I use uh, it's going to save you a lot of money. Um, I use a, I use a twenty pound like trilene Walmart like you know spool whatever like costs you five dollars. It's mono. I don't know. I bought it when I was uh, twenty two. I am twenty seven. Oh wow! It's lasted that long. <laughs> so I yank off like six, seven feet of 20 pound mono. And I tie that onto a large or medium, um, tippet ring. Um, just use a clench knot. You can use a knot if you want. Um, and that's where my bobber is going to sit, right? That tippet ring, it's got a knot and it's got the bobber right here. Which I got, right? The tippet, it's got, it's like, it's a, it's a, 180 degree rig, 90 degree, right? So it, it drops completely off that bobber straight down to the water. There's no knot suspending it out and over. There's no drag on it. If you should tie a triple surgeon knot where that mono and that flora meets, your mono is going to float your flora for a little bit. So you're going to lose mm-hmm. a couple inches. It's, just an, it's an arc, a slow yeah, arc. Arc. Yeah, it does. Down a little bit, right? And if, if it's a really heavy fly, it's going to move your your whole rig up like that a little bit. It's going to want to pull that knot over instead of just fold your your fluoro up against your up against your knot, right? So you use a tippet ring instead. It acts as like a swivel point, right? Some people actually use a, a swivel. They use a bear swivel. Um, the bobbers will float it. Um, and so I use a tippet ring and then I'll run six pound test straight down to my first note. And then six pound test, which is four X, right? Um, or five X down to my uh, second fly. Um, so that's how I know. Now, bobber size and fly size is completely dependent upon water flow. Um, For example, if they're running less than 10,000 or less than 12,000 CFS, you'll see me fish a medium airlock or a medium bobber with size 16 and 18 or size 18 and 20 flies. Nips, whatever, right? Um, if they're running above 12,000 CFS, you'll see a large bobber with size 14 and 16s or 16s and 18s, depending on where I'm fishing. Um, so you get a little bit bigger as the water gets bigger. Correct. So water hides you. Water hides the boat. Water hides your splashes from your bobbers or your rigs. Um, and it allows you to fish, you know, like say 16,000 CFS, that water moving around that log super fast. I need my flies to get down pronto. So I need a size 14 with like a 3.6 millimeter bead, something big to just drop it straight down. I never use split shot 
but I try really hard not to. I would rather just use the correct size bead to bring the nymph down. So I'm talking like a tungsten bead head on uh, a jig or something, right? Um, so so it's, it's above 16, I'm using big beads. If it's below 12, I'm using, I'm using small beads. But in between water, you know, I kind of bounce around with everything in between. And you said you're prim- primarily fishing six to seven feet down. You're not one of these guys out there with a nine to 10 to sometimes you hear 11, 11 foot long setup that's in the water. You know, you're not, yeah, you're not trying to go out in the middle, I guess, and just drag flies off the bottom. You're, you're trying to stay around structure and cast towards the bank and find those good riffle lines, that kind of thing. Correct. So there are a lot of different ways to catch fish on the white river. Um, especially with it being, you know, like, like 300 yards right and there are fish every single every single line over through that river um i don't necessarily enjoy fly fishing a leader longer than the fly rod pretty hard to control however there are certain seasons patches water levels and which that is how you catch the biggest fish um I like fishing the bank. I, I kind of explain it to people like this. When I fish the bank, I have will, or at least I think I do. I have will over my outcomes and the circumstances, right? I caught that fish on that log, and sure enough, I'm going to catch him again, and I do. Whereas if I fish deep, I'm kind of leaving it up to the fish in a general area. And there's structure on the bottom and they fish that in low water all the time. But in high water, I'm kind of leaving it up to the fish to move and eat my stuff, right? Whereas if I fish the bank, I have control over my fly moving right in line with the log on the bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's being in the in the game a little bit more, I guess, fishing towards the bank, or at least at least you know where the structure is and you know where the water seams are you know where fish are supposed to be so you can get your fly right where you need it to be. Yeah, you can see it. Yeah, rather than just out there in the middle somewhere. <laughs> it's like bass fishing. You're you're throwing it on like logs, backside of boulders, you know, docks, pylons, structure points, and you're throwing these two little nymphs six, seven feet deep right on the nose of the fish. Um, now... During like shad kill or say caddis season when they cut the water, you know, I really do enjoy fishing one unit of water and fishing a seven or nine foot leader. Um, there's a time and place for it. And if the bugs are hatching, we get to catch the fish in the middle of the river too, which is great. Um, but my favorite is definitely fishing the bank. So, um, as far as dry fly fishing goes, um, and the leader for that, um, I fish a 14 foot leader. That is to allow your leader to be moved in that scene that is so weird in that high water. Cause here's the deal. You've got a lot of happy fish eating. If you have 15 feet above, your leader is going to get moved before you get to And a 14-foot leader you can mend and get above that movement a lot better than a 9-foot leader, right? you got an extra 5 feet of slack to your fly. Um, I've fished longer leaders before in higher water, um, but a 14-foot leader usually works. And the whole goal is, like I said, to put that fly right in front of the pod, probably about five feet away, not 15, right? You don't want your leader to get messed up. So you throw it about five feet away from the pod, give it one small min, and that's your drift. If it gets messed up, it gets messed up. If the fish doesn't eat it, the fish doesn't eat it. You get one shot, 
because any additional movement or a recast will put those fish down to the guy in the back of the boat, right? Guy in the back of the boat. As soon as this game in the front of the boat is over or you won the game, right? If you hook a fish, nine times out of ten, the pod keeps on eating, and the guy in the back can catch a fish too, which is fun. That's what we're all about, like catching two at the same time. Uh, but if, if he misses it, right, guy in the back of the boat is no delay, right in, same kind of shot, moves his mend up above his bug best he can, best he can, and he gets, he gets one drift into him. That's it, right? You move past your pod, you look for some more fish, you turn on the motor, you run up, you run the drift again. You wait on your you know, fellow guys if they're also running the lap, you're courteous to the other people, you get your next shot. And that's kind of how you run the dry fly program with a 14-foot lead. What's the taper on that 14-foot? Like how, how Are you building your own leader on that? And, and what's the transition down? Yeah, so that's a that's a five x uh, to the fly. Uh, what I do is I do a nine foot two x Orvis um, Orvis Mirage. No, Mirage is for uh, Orvis uh, Mono uh, Leader, and uh, then I do five x uh, an additional you know five feet six feet past that. And so that is my leader. So there is a knot. Um, you can buy 14, 15, and 10 foot leaders um, from various companies. Um, I like having a knot. Um, it's a small pivot point. It's a little bit of a, I'm trying to say. So if you're casting and you've got a lot of line out, a lot of times you can have false loops, right? You get a false loop. Um, or, or a false tangle in your dry fly leader, you pretty much shot your entire dry fly leader. You're done, right? You got to put on a new leader. That thing is up above your section. Um, so I use a knot. It allows a little bit of a bend in that leader. It kind of prevents some tailing loops. And if there is one, you just cut it off and retie your 5X. Yeah, you're not, you're not losing your whole setup. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. And you're, you're casting 45 degrees off the front of the boat, you know, a, approaching approaching that pot of fish. Got the guy on the oars trying to keep the boat similar speed, all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So as far as boat mechanic goes, um, boat mechanics, um, guy in the back of the boat is always off the corner of the boat. Um, my boat has two white Yeti boxes, um, and you cast right over the top of them. Um, little places for your line to sit. Um, but those white Yeti boxes are 45 degrees. Guys in the back of the boat, um, as soon as front of the boat cast lands, the guy in the back of the boat is casting. Um, and so the way we work down the river is just boom, 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 right? Every other guy in the front of the boat is a spot, guy in the back of the boat throws, guy in the back of the boat's angle is directly in line with my oar. A lot of the times people will cast kind of upriver, right? Because they feel like they're pressuring the front angler's cast. Um, and the reality is, is the front angler has to get further downriver um, in the instance that the cast come close together, right? Um, if we start casting back here, will start crossing lines on the back of the boat. So the whole angle of fishing out of these boats in general, nymphing or dry fly fishing is always 45 degrees downriver uh, and the back of the boat is thrown where the oars are. When you say throwing where the oars are, just to c clarify, because I'm trying to think of someone who's listening and they can't see your sophisticated and complex right. hand movements. <laughs> um, are, you're talking about <laughs> like 90 degrees from the oars or pointing downstream at a 45 from the oars. Maybe am I, am I confusing that? Or? I, I didn't get the question. 
Are you so when you say from the oars, are you saying straight out? Yeah, straight out. So like it would be if the person standing behind me in the boat, perpendicular would be standing like sideways looking at the bank, right? Perpendicular from the yeah. boat. Mm-hmm. It'd be perpendicular from where the oars are. From the guy rowing, it's ninety degrees straight out. Where you're standing, it's forty five degrees. It would be forty five for the dudes standing Got it. In the back too, but he'd be throwing where the yeah. Okay, that's what I thought you were saying, but I just wanted to try to clarify that for anyone just listening. <laughs> so, okay, that makes sense. Um, what about what about flies? I mean, I know you talked a little bit about size as as water goes up and down. Do you have any specific like names of flies, or what do you look for in a in a good fly for fishing the sulfur hatch? Um, I fish a lot of pertigons for the sulfur hatch. I uh, fish a lot of. Um, Mayfly notes. Um, so I fish a lot of let's, specific fly names would be uh, lightning bug. Um, Is it just like a general mayfly nymph pattern? Like so, you're looking for anything that's pearl or yellow or or brown um, mayfly nymph, right? So you're looking for like. Copper johns in yellow. Um, you're looking for lightning bugs, which are a very popular mayfly nymph. Um, you're looking for for anything yellow, okay? Um, yellow pertigons. Um, there's a lot of different company companies if you Google, you know, sulfur uh, nymph. Um, I know Montana Fly Company's got a lot, so does Umpqua. Um, but I fish a lot of a lot of comparisons, um, and a lot of pertigons. Um, that's that's kind of the bread and butter around here. Yeah, that makes sense. And then in terms of when you have all of these natural bugs in the water, um, bug for lack of a better term, coming to my mind right now, but bugs right you have thousands of choices for the fish to look at and eat how do you get them to to eat your fake bug right your fly that you're throwing amidst a sea of thousands what's the technique for getting them to bite literally on on what you're throwing a lot of it is timing so much of it is timing your fly selection is undoubtedly very important um, having the right shade of brown mixed in your yellow or, you know, whatever, um, the right bead head, the right size is very important. Um, you know, when throwing dries, it's all timing. Um, fish are going to feed every 10, seven, three or five seconds. Uh, very rarely be every single, you know, time. Um, every pod feeds differently. Um, so when you approach fish that you see feeding, your first pass, of course, get a cast, but don't be sidetracked, um, by, by the event. If you're going to do it again, if you're, if you miss them, if you're off, you should be, you should be counting the seconds in between the eats. And then your next drift over them is with those seconds in mind. You see the E, I'm going to tell you as the angler, one, two, three is passing. You're passing four, five. There's the fly in front of the fish. The fish is at five seconds. He's coming up to look at your fly. You're going to eat yours or pass on it. And that's up to the fish more times than we like, right? It's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's up to the fish guys. Uh, yeah. But that's the best you can do, right? Um, is time your fish. Have the right fly, but time your fish. I, I see a lot of people make a cast at a fish that just ate. Yeah, they're, you're, and you're going to miss it. Right. right. So. Yeah. Man, there's just no better feeling than being out on that water and watching those fish rise and casting that fly out, You're, you know four, five, six feet out ahead of them and just knowing, oh, that's, it's perfect. Like it's drifting right where I need it. And then watching it all come together. 
I mean, I don't, I don't care if it's a 12 inch stalker. That's still a good time. Yeah. <laughs> Watching it actually oh, yeah. come together way better when it's a, you know, 22 inch Brown, but man, that's fun. It is. It is. Man. It's, it's definitely what I, uh, it's what I live for. Um, it's what I'm most excited about. I can wake up at 5 AM for 25 days in a row. If those fish are going to sit there and eat like that. That's, that's all right. It's just like, it's the best feeling pulling in there. Yeah, it's, and it's unreal. Breathing in that cold air, seeing that fog come off the water. It's like, it, it really feels like, oh, this is like, God is here, right? Like you're looking in the fog and you're like, this is God's space. Right, right. No, I, I never feel like I need to go and look for him. I feel like he's there every morning. That's awesome. awesome. That's cool. Well, Ben, if people want to come fishing with you, how do they, uh, how do they best contact you? Uh, the best way to get a hold of me is uh, through my website, uh, woodardflyfishing.com. Uh, There's an email form on there. Um, if you're looking for ASAP stuff, my cell phone's there. Just text me. Uh, let me know who you are. Don't also not include your name. That's not a whole lot of fun. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's it. <laughs> Very cool. Well, we appreciate you taking the time. I know you're a busy guy, and um, it's it's hard to find time away from the river and and uh, just you know over the the web. We'll have to figure out a time to get together in person. We always prefer if we can to do it in person, but mm-hmm. sometimes schedules are just hard to line up. So, um, just wanted to say thanks a lot for for joining us on here. Absolutely, thanks for having me, guys. I'll see y'all out there. Sounds good. To our listeners, if you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it with a fishing buddy. Send it to a guy who you know needs a little bit of help on the water. And uh, if you really liked it, make sure you leave us a five-star rating and review. And we'll see you on the next one. This podcast is hosted by Kyle V and Kyle Plunkett and produced by Daniel Matthews. For guest recommendations, episode ideas, and general questions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or email us at theozarkpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, we love making this show and being able to offer this podcast to y'all for free. But if you're listening and you want to support the Ozark Podcast to allow us to travel even further and meet more interesting people, head over to our Patreon and sign up to join our most loyal listeners. Let me tell you, these folks are 100% certified Ozarkans. And of course, we can't forget to thank our good buddy, J.D. Clayton, for providing the amazing music for today's episode. Check out his website to see where he's touring next at jdclaytonofficial.com. Now, sit back and enjoy his song, American Millionaire.